On the 13th of February 1542, Catherine Howard, the fifth wife of King Henry VIII, was escorted from her chambers inside the Tower of London to the place of execution. She would not face the baying crowds of London, but instead be executed privately. Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador to the court of Henry VIII, claimed that she died on the very same spot where just six years earlier her cousin and fellow queen consort Anne Boleyn had met the same fate. Unlike Anne Boleyn, however, there was to be no special allowances made on this day, no French expert swordsman who would ensure a swift and clean end to her life, no solemn draping of black cloth around the scaffold as a mark of Catherine's former rank. Anne Boleyn's execution, while still a grisly affair, had a certain level of protocol weaved into the way that it was carried out that made her end feel starkly more regal. The death of a queen, even one condemned as a traitor, should carry with it a certain level of respect and ceremony. The stark difference that greeted Catherine Howard on the scaffold in 1542 is seen by many as further proof of the possible stab of conscience or pity that Henry VIII felt towards Anne Boleyn but did not extend to Catherine six years later. This is perhaps compounded by the fact that unlike Anne Boleyn, it would appear that Catherine Howard was indeed guilty of the charges brought against her. But should we pause when condemning Catherine as an airhead harlot as she is so often betrayed and consider whether she may have been as much a victim as a traitor? Welcome back to the Tudor Chest Podcast, Episode 12, The Life and Death of Catherine Howard. Despite Henry VIII not ordering an expert swordsman to dispatch his fifth queen, there would be one strange allowance made for Catherine Howard, and it was one made at her own request. It's a most curious story, but upon being told that she would die at 7am on Monday the 13th of February 1542, she requested that the block on which she would lay her head the following morning be brought to her cell. Catherine wanted to practice laying her head upon it. She supposedly practiced for several hours, perhaps hoping that doing so would make the experience a few hours later seem less frightening somehow. It's a chilling prospect, but appears entirely in keeping with Catherine's own character. Her biographer, Gareth Russell, suggests that one of Catherine's overwhelming character traits, or flaws, was a hatred of embarrassment. By practicing her own death, was she hoping to avoid any potential embarrassment the following day? Catherine was, by most historians' reckoning, no more than 19 years old at the time of her death, and has repeatedly been labelled as nothing more than an idiotic floozy, made no better by her relatively inaccurate portrayals in film and television. And yet here she was, acting out a strangely macabre dress rehearsal of her own death. This alone suggests a woman of significantly greater depth of character than we've been led to believe, and someone who was also determined to do her job properly right up to the end. She was, after all, a Howard, easily the most prominent noble family in the country behind the Tudors themselves. Despite Catherine's heritage, her upbringing could hardly be called intensely glamorous or remotely conventional for someone with the surname of Howard. She had the misfortune of being born to Lord Edmund Howard, the third son of Thomas Howard, 2nd Duke of Norfolk. 
it would appear that Edmund was something of an ineffectual tertiary figure at the court of Henry VIII, never sharing in the respect and favour that the king bestowed upon Edmund's two older brothers, particularly the eldest, Thomas, who had become the infamous third Duke of Norfolk in time. With that said, Edmund did at times appear to benefit from his position in the second family of the land, most notably with his appointment of controller of Calais in 1531, perhaps under the influence of his niece, Anne Boleyn. Sadly, it would not last. Edmund would be dismissed in 1539 after years of ineffectual leadership, achieving nothing and earning him less money than he had started with. And herein lies Edmund's biggest problem, money. Despite being a Howard, he was not the all-important heir, or even the spare. He was the spare of the spare, and so Edmund was forever short of money. This wasn't unusual. A lot of noble houses in England suffered with incomes incommensurate with the expected grandeur that they were meant to project. This was invariably not helped by the fact that the nobility often had large families, as Edmund himself did, with six children by his wife Joyce Culpepper, who herself had five children by her deceased first husband, which then became Edmund's financial responsibility as well. It would also seem that what little money he did have, he was not remotely sensible with. After utterly burning through his wife Joyce's highly valuable lands in Kent and Hampshire, Edmund was forced to flee to Europe to avoid his creditors, leaving his many children to be brought up by relatives. As the fifth child of the third son of the Duke of Norfolk, Catherine Howard's early life was therefore not the glittering mecca that you might expect from such a high-born young woman in Tudor England, and certainly not the upbringing for anyone who ever imagined that she would one day become queen. Likely born in around 1523, Catherine was sent to live with her step-grandmother, Agnes Tilney, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, at her estate in Horsham in Sussex. Catherine's mother had died in 1528, and as the Dowager Duchess had major households in both London and Sussex, Catherine, along with some of her siblings, moved in with their step-grandmother, who took in many wards. You get the sense that the Dowager Duchess's household was a bit like a sort of gigantic dorm, just full of random waifs and strays from across the Howard network, and truth be told, that's probably what it was like. As Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, Agnes was one of the highest-ranking women in England. As such, she was expected to spend the majority of her time away at the court, which unfortunately led to the supervision of her young charges becoming somewhat lax. Soon, Catherine was being influenced by older girls in her household who allowed men into their sleeping quarters at night. It would appear that the young men and women of the household enjoyed each other's company, often drinking wine and eating food stolen from the kitchens. I am inclined to believe that there may have been plenty of flirting, what we might now call heavy petting, a bit of upstairs outdoors going on, but I feel it prudent to exercise some caution with the theory that it was an all-out sex fest, as depicted in Showtime series The Tudors. Consider that this was an age before effective contraception, but more importantly one that placed enormous weight on a woman's virtue, especially high-born women, even ones of impoverished parents. If there was even a whiff of suspicion that a young woman had not been properly chased, then her prospects in high society were practically zero. Catherine would have known this fact all too well. Despite her position as a Howard, Catherine was not well educated, although her ability to read and write was certainly considered impressive for the time. What cannot be overlooked is that she was considerably far less worldly, far less educated than her cousin Anne Boleyn. She was described as vivacious and giggly, but never serious or scholarly. She was reported as being an accomplished dancer, but was easily distracted and appears to have been rather frivolous. 
I would, however, highlight that at this time, she was probably around 13 to 14 years old, and was therefore acting exactly as how many young teenagers behave. By 1536, Catherine had begun music lessons with a man called Henry Mannox. Unfortunately, very little is known about how Mannox came to be in the Dowager Duchess's household, but what is certainly accepted by historians is that soon some type of relationship between Mannox and Catherine became more than merely that of teacher and student. Some historians have put forward the theory that Catherine and Mannox's relationship became abusive, with Mannox preying upon Catherine and encouraging her to lose her virginity to him. Mannox soon began gossiping about his apparent conquest of Catherine, which greatly angered and embarrassed her. It does, however, appear to have just been mere gossip, as Mannox himself would admit years later, during Catherine's investigation, that they had engaged in a form of sexual conduct that had not gone the whole way. Catherine's own testimony would mirror Mannox's perfectly. By 1539, Catherine sufficiently distanced herself from Mannox and began to be pursued by another hanger-on of the household, Francis Derham. Catherine Howard and Derham soon became lovers, although whether they went through full sexual intimacy is not completely clear. However, they did begin addressing each other, perhaps playfully, as husband and wife. When Derham was away, he entrusted Catherine to manage his finances, which not only highlights that Catherine, if she were able to manage a budget, was more highly educated than we've been led to believe, but also the fact that Catherine and Derham did appear to be acting like a genuine couple. Catherine's life would soon change beyond all recognition when her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, secured a position for her in the household of Henry VIII's fourth wife, Anna of Cleves. Perhaps sensing the end of Thomas Cromwell via the absolute disaster that was the Cleves marriage, Norfolk began to move against him. He saw an opportunity to elevate the Howards back to the enormous influence that they had enjoyed under Anne Boleyn, who via her mother was a niece of the Duke of Norfolk, and thus a full first cousin of Catherine Howard. Catherine soon caught the king's eye, and within months of her arrival at court, she would be bestowed with great gifts of land, expensive cloth, furs, and jewellery. After the king managed to sufficiently annul his six-month marriage to Anna of Cleves, he proposed to Catherine, and on the 28th of July 1540, they were married, the very same day that Thomas Cromwell would lose his head on the executioner's scaffold. At the time of their marriage, Catherine may have been as young as just 16 years old, although it's more probable that she was nearer 18. Either way, by now the king was 49, grossly obese, plagued with ill health and an ulcer in his leg that never healed and reportedly smelt dreadful. In fact, it was said that it could be smelt from three rooms away from where the king was. It is not hard to imagine, therefore, that Catherine must surely have felt a certain amount of horror at what she was being married to, even if it propelled her to the very top of Tudor society. Thanks to the television dramas such as The Six Wives of Henry VIII, or more prominently The Tudors, Catherine's tenure as queen has been viewed as one filled with nothing but shopping, dancing and drinking, a Tudor Marie Antoinette, if you will. However, whilst it's true that Catherine did definitely enjoy the trappings of royalty, this did not make her unusual, for Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr all spent lavishly on clothing and their households. Equally, this does not mean that she wasn't a dutiful queen who understood the role that she had been raised to. From the official records, it becomes clear that it was quite the contrary, for Catherine fulfilled her ceremonial role with aplomb. The theory that she was an airhead with little care for duty or the sanctity of her role as Queen Consort has zero contemporary basis, and when one looks more closely, there is simply no evidence to back up this assessment. I think it's undeniable that she was probably quite naive, and at times felt very out of her depth, 
but it seems to me unfair to label her as anything more than that without irrefutable proof to say otherwise. Unfortunately for Catherine, she could not truly escape her past in Horsham. It was always going to come back and haunt her. It is believed that people from her time in Horsham, no doubt intent on riding on her queenly coattails, began to pressure Catherine into providing favour to them in exchange for their silence on the past. The beginning of the end for Catherine occurred when her fellow childhood ward, Mary Lassells, refused her brother John's request to secure him a position in the Queen's household. Mary had claimed that she had bore witness to Catherine's loose living during their time in Horsham, and upon hearing this, John reported his findings to Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. Under interrogation from Cranmer, Mary Lassells confessed that Catherine had had a sexual relationship in her past, which included the promise of marriage, thus nullifying her marriage to the king. In Tudor England, words around marriage were just as binding as deeds themselves, and so simply expressing the wish to be married and referring to each other as husband and wife was enough technically to constitute a binding marriage pact in the eyes of God and the court, no doubt spotting an opportunity to greatly discredit the ardently Catholic Howards, who had also been responsible for the fall of his friend Thomas Cromwell. Thomas Cranmer, who was an equally fervent Protestant, took charge of the case now beginning to build around the Queen. At this stage, however, Catherine's actions were enough to remove her from the position of Queen and nullify her marriage, but would not have resulted in her death. She could be banished in disgrace, but she would have at least remained alive. That was until the interrogation of Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, the widow of George Boleyn and therefore the sister-in-law of Queen Anne Boleyn. Under questioning, Lady Rochford confessed to assisting in an adulterous relationship between Queen Catherine and Thomas Culpepper, a courtier and close friend of King Henry VIII's, and it was this that utterly changed everything. It was one thing to lie about your past, but another thing entirely to actively engage in an adulterous relationship with a member of the king's own household. Perhaps fearing the outcome of taking the news directly to the king, Cranmer orchestrated a letter to be placed onto the pew from which King Henry was praying in the Chapel Royal of Hampton Court Palace, detailing the accusations against Catherine Howard. On November the 7th, Cranmer moved against the Queen, questioning her alongside a delegation of councillors at Winchester Palace, just south of London. Cranmer found the Queen in a pitiful state, commenting that... I found her in such lamentation and heaviness as I never saw no creature, so that it would have pitied any man's heart to have looked upon her. Such was his concern for her mental well-being that he ordered the guards to remove any objects that she might use to commit suicide. Despite the fact that it might have spared Catherine's life, she denied any pre-contract with Francis Deren, instead insisting that she had been repeatedly raped by him during their time together in Horsham. By November 23rd, Catherine was stripped of her title as Queen, and just eight days later, both Culpepper and Derham were on trial for high treason. Mannix somehow managed to sufficiently distance himself from the proceedings. The verdict of guilty was a foregone conclusion, and both were sentenced to a traitor's death of hanging, drawing and quartering. Despite Derham being, arguably, the less guilty party, it was he who would suffer this truly horrific form of execution. Thomas Culpepper, through his affinity to King Henry VIII, had his sentence commuted to the swifter method of death by decapitation. 
Through the winter of 1541 and early 1542, Catherine was imprisoned at Sion Abbey. Many of Catherine's relatives were also imprisoned in the Tower of London, with the exception of her uncle, the wily Duke of Norfolk, easily one of history's biggest twats, who had sufficiently distanced himself from the whole affair. Catherine herself remained in a weird state of limbo, not knowing how the court would move against her. The Royal Assent by Commission Act of 1541 made it treason and punishable by death for a Queen Consort to fail to disclose her sexual history to the King within 20 days of their marriage, or to incite someone to commit adultery with her. This was the legal technicality that robbed Catherine of her future. She was guilty as charged. No trial would be necessary. Lady Rochford had also become complicit in her actions to facilitate Culpepper and the Queen's meetings and was therefore sentenced to death alongside Catherine Howard. As I referenced at the start of this episode, the night before her execution, Catherine spent a lot of time practising how to lay her head onto the block. She was said to die with relative composure but looked pale and terrified, being barely able to speak. Her scaffold speech stuck to the custom of the day, acknowledging her faults and describing her punishment as worthy and just. The belief that she said, I die a queen, but would rather have died the wife of Culpepper, is complete nonsense and has zero contemporary source to back it up. There is also no evidence to back up the depiction as seen in the Tudors where Catherine loses all ability to hold on to her bodily functions and wet herself on the scaffold. Again, didn't happen. Mercifully, Catherine's execution was swift. She was beheaded with a single blow of the axe. During her imprisonment, Jane Boleyn, Lady Rochford, had suffered a complete mental breakdown, which would have normally seen her avoid punishment, but so determined was Henry to see her suffer that he pushed through a change in the law, and she was therefore duly executed not long after Catherine. It's entirely possible that the scaffold was still covered in Catherine's blood. Both women were buried inside the chapel of St Peter ad Vincula. During the restoration work done on the chapel during the reign of Queen Victoria, the space where Catherine was said to be buried was dug up, but no remains were found. It is believed that the limestone used to intern her simply turned her bones to dust, having not sufficiently hardened with age prior to her death. The question, however, is was Catherine truly guilty? Did she genuinely sleep with these men without a thought for the wider repercussions of her actions? To understand this properly, one has to separate our own views on sexuality and contemporary gender behaviour to remember that England in the 1540s was an incredibly different place on practically every level. We cannot say that we can truly think like a Tudor because we can't. In November 1541, Catherine confessed to her sexual relations with Francis Derham, testifying that Francis Derham, by many persuasions, procured me to his vicious purpose. We have scant records of Catherine's feelings and actions, but not once do we have anything to suggest that she personally enjoyed the affair with Derham or potentially with Mannix. I reiterate again, Catherine was a member of one of the most important noble families in the kingdom, in which family members were married off to other noble families to strengthen ties between them. It does not seem likely, therefore, that Catherine would enter into sexual relationships with no consideration for her future or the reputation of her family. She may have been born low down the Howard pecking order, but it was still a noble pecking order and she would have known her place. We also need to consider that Tudor England was built around severe patriarchy. The actions of men carried much 
greater weight in testimony, with women often being viewed as weak and easily led by their desires. Crucially, women were viewed as deliberately sexually voracious. They would seek the means to belittle and bring down their male counterparts. Male testimony, in other words, counted for a lot more. Men had a natural advantage in Tudor England, with the default assumption that Derham was speaking the truth, whilst Catherine must surely have lied. Crucially, the act of remaining silent under questioning led to a belief that the woman in question could not be trusted, and because Catherine remained silent about her own past sexual experiences, she was naturally viewed with suspicion by her investigators. What is seldom touched on but is clear is that Catherine, by this point, was really beginning to suffer, for she said to Thomas Cranmer, the sorrow of my offences was ever before my eyes. Although the Queen did confess to unsavoury communication with Mannox and Derham and to meeting with Culpepper, she refused to state that she was guilty of adultery. Looking through a 2023 lens, we simply cannot apply our own outlook on female sexuality against that of 16th century England. When studying Catherine, we have to ensure that we review contemporary gender codes of behaviour through the beliefs of the time and not through our own world view. Our predisposition to blame the female has to stop, but must instead be viewed from both sides of the argument. Not doing so lands us in the trap of writing Catherine off as nothing more than an empty-headed harlot. To me, it appears much more likely that she was the victim of early modern notions of sexual coercion and blame, in which her male counterparts were privileged and female victims viewed with distrust. Historians should look to reassess their own findings on Catherine and try to step outside our own modern-day perspective to try and apply the societal norms of the day and just how much this defined Catherine Howard's story. Catherine Howard was queen for just 18 months. Her relatively short reign and generally minimal impact on British history has undoubtedly contributed to her being one of King Henry VIII's more forgettable queens. The centuries of name-calling towards her, airhead, tart, floozy, have however in the past few years began to soften. Whilst I've always found her to be one of the most fascinating of Henry VIII's queens, her overall life, reign and downfall has been irrevocably changed by modern biographers, most prominently in the work of Gareth Russell and his incredible book Young and Damned and Fair. I do not know the full details, but I believe a full-length documentary about Catherine is also on the horizon, and I sincerely hope that it looks to reassess much of what we have been told to believe about her story. Catherine may be well less known than some of her contemporaries, but what cannot be denied is that of the six wives of Henry VIII, she was one of, if not the most tragic. She was a teenager, born to a great name, but no great riches, then likely abused, married off to a man old enough to be her grandfather, who 18 months later authorised her execution. By any standards, that's a truly tragic tale, even if it did include a brief period in which she became the most elevated woman in England. Given the brevity of her reign and what it eventually led to, I doubt even Catherine herself would have chosen to do it all again had she had the chance. And so, that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. In addition to this, my weekly episode, I also release a weekly subscriber-only episode via my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest, or on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Just search for the Tudor Chest Podcast. Next time, I'm going to be exploring the life of the man for whom we owe so much, the man who gave us a window into the world of the Tudors, the court painter to Henry VIII, 
Hans Holbein. I'm incredibly excited that on Thursday of this week, I'm going to a press launch of a new exhibition of Hans Holbein's work at Buckingham Palace, and I'll be sure to discuss that in the episode. Thank you again for your support of the Tudor Chest, and speak soon.